Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Well, it depends what our idea of the source is. We all have differing ideas of what faith is or what God is. John starts off as an essentially godless person. He he has no belief in anything bigger than himself. And by the end, he's come to some kind of understanding that he he is now, through his relationship with Bibuti and through the intimacy that those two men find between themselves, John realizes that actually there is probably something bigger at play in life. And, And whether you choose to name that as God or a religion of, of any denomination or not, is, I think, open to interpretation. I think for John, he's found God in other people. He has found God in people who have accepted him for who he is and who have shown him compassion and shown him care and shown him love. And Bibuti, for his part, much as in real life, is somebody who has a, a very strong faith but, but doesn't necessarily go in for the dogma or the uh, accoutrements of uh, a practiced religion. He just has a, a strong belief in a unifying force, something that holds us all together and something which uh, encourages the better part of our natures. And that's something that I think we could all kind of do with a bit more of in our lives. What is the source of life? How do we tap into it? And does Pope Francis have the answer? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight's show is all about inspiration and leadership. This evening, we're going to meet with two extraordinary men, one an Argentinian, the other an Indian. Men of formidable willpower, drive, belief and capacity. Guardian First Book Award winner, Stephen Kalman talks human endurance, marriage and intimacy as played out in his engrossing second novel, Man on Fire. And British writer and journalist Paul Vallely unpacks the complex personality that is Pope Francis. This is a show about personality and leadership, hope and change, epiphanies, dreams and an unlikely guru. But first... I do what I do to show the common man that there is happiness at the other side of pain. The inspirational words of award-winning British novelist Stephen Kalman from his second novel, Man on Far, published by Bloomsbury. Hello, my name's Stephen Kalman. My first novel was published in 2011. It was called Pigeon English and it made the Man Booker shortlist that year. My second novel, Man on Fire, was published in August of this year. And it tells the story of two very different men, one from England, one from India, who come together and and form an unusual friendship based on a joint mission to break a world record. Stephen, can I get you to start off with a bit of a reading? Sure. Well, there's a section here where uh, John and Babuti, the English and Indian characters respectively, have just started working together in hopes of breaking a world record and they're doing their training together and John is asking Babuti whose uh, methods are, are quite powerful in terms of how he defeats the pain barrier. John is asking Babuti how he can achieve that. I asked Babuti how he beats pain. I have trained myself. 
pain is a choice. I have chosen not to accept it. That's handy. Yes, it is very useful. How, though? Come, Bibuti said, and he got up, planted himself by the badminton net. He parted his legs just so. You will kick me, and you will see. I couldn't do it. He tried to convince me, but I was frozen. Some righteous portion of my brain wouldn't let me cross the line. I told him I had a tight hamstring. I'd wait until it was better. Very well, Bibuti said, and he waved Jolly Boy in. Jolly Boy is his son. Still holding his badminton racket, he took a casual swipe at his father's groin, the action so familiar to him that it seemed almost involuntary. No emotion played on his face. His father accepted the kick in a similar fashion. I imagined countless mornings of stiff routine, father goading son to harder and faster, teasing from him by attrition the bravery that would see him carry on the family name. You see? the booty asked. I saw it, yeah. But what I want to know is how? It is a switch, like a light switch. I press the switch and the light goes off. Then it is darkness and the pain cannot be seen. I know it is there, but if I cannot see it, then it cannot grab me. I nodded my head to show that I believed him. The book is fascinating, Stephen. I loved it. Uh, it brings up so many different issues, not just on human endurance and pain, but also how we live and whether we can live creatively or not. It struck me, though, as I was reading through the book, that is pain really a mental game? How we understand our pain, how we work with it. That's the big game of life, really, isn't it? Oh, I guess. I think our extent to how we can kind of, as Babuti says, turn that pain switch off determines how fulfilling uh, and how successful our lives can be in many ways and I think one of the things I explore in the book is the different perception of pain between the English character and the English mindset and the Indian way of, of dealing with things which is very stoical and very philosophical and the Indian belief is very much as represented by Babuti it's, it's very much that pain is a necessary test of life and then it's not something that necessarily has to be shied away from it's almost uh, accepted that in order to live a rich life uh, and a fulfilling life you have to kind of take a journey through pain to come out the other side whereas over here in the west we you know we're very queasy generally where we want to avoid hardship and challenge at all costs really and i think that contrast is something that uh, is quite interesting in the book And Stephen, the joke is that we're possibly making our pain more intense by not understanding it and working with it. Absolutely, yes. I think that this fear of analysing ourselves is very much becoming a Western trait. Uh, And this fear of accepting the the benefits of self-analysis and the benefits of seeing a challenge through uh, and enduring pain so that we can reach a kind of transcendence on the other side of it. And that is a disservice to us. It it, it doesn't then lend itself to a life that's fully lived. Now, Stephen, Babuti is a real living, breathing Indian. And you've met him and he's pretty much inspired you in a lot of different ways. Can you tell me about him? Well, Babuti is um, in many ways a, a kind of a template for my life of how I want to live. And he's somebody who I've known for a few years now, maybe since 2008. My first encounter with him was just watching TV one day back at home in the UK. And, and he appeared on my TV screen demonstrating uh, his first world record, which was to be kicked 43 times in a minute and a half in the groin by four of his martial arts students. And there he was introducing himself to me as somebody who 
had this very bizarre interest, very bizarre hobby. But I, I immediately kind of wanted to dig deeper and find out what motivated him to do that kind of thing. And, you know, I wanted to understand the nobility behind the things he, he chose to do. Uh, he's a, a very straight-laced and conservative man in many ways. You know, in his day job, he's a journalist for the Times of India, a member of, I guess, the burgeoning Indian middle class. But he has this whole alter ego, this whole other side to him, which is, you know, these quite demanding and dangerous world records which he attempts with increasing regularity. I mean, this year alone, he has broken four world records. And uh, it, it's something that drives him. And I'm always interested in exploring the different ways in which people are motivated to leave an impression on the world. Um, so I got in touch with him after seeing him on the documentary show. And this was before Pigeon English, actually, so I wasn't even a published writer at this point. I had no credentials whatsoever. But I, I got in touch with him and said, I, I'm really fascinated by you. I'd, I'd love to write about you. And we began a conversation there and then in which he was very open and unguarded and, and gave me his permission straight away to write about him. And over the course of the next couple of years, we communicated very regularly by email, and I, I got to understand him, I think, quite well. You know, his motivations, his, his philosophy on things, uh, and he told me a lot about his, his life up until the point where he decided to break world records. And his life was one of struggle, uh, um, one of great hardship. And the fact that through his very personal decision to enter the, the realm of record-breaking, he had found a way to overcome the demons of his past and, and also find a way to, in his words, give a positive message to the people around him. I thought was just really fascinating and really inspiring. I, I've met him only three times in total. The last time I saw him was actually a couple of weeks ago. I was out in Mumbai and spent some time with him. On each occasion, we've just found that we have actually more in common than I, I would have realized when we first began our friendship. And he's rubbed off on me in a very positive way to the, to the extent that if ever I face a challenge in life, I always find myself thinking, how would Babuti react? What lessons can I learn from him? And uh, yeah, we're great friends now. He's from Orissa in India, and it's one of the poorest states. And I know that he left home at a very early age yeah. and self-educated. He's an extraordinary backstory, but his approach to living is really, really, really something special. His temperament is quite unique. Can you tell me about his philosophy of living? I know he's a vegetarian. He sleeps only for a few hours. His philosophy of life is all based on the breath, isn't it? Yes, uh, he believes that breathing is the key to everything. And he... He taught me how to breathe properly the first time I met him, actually, and that's a lesson that has stuck with me. But, yeah, his, his whole idea is one of denying yourself indulgence, treating your body in quite a, an unforgiving way. I mean, his, his regime is, is very demanding and rigorous. As you say, two hours sleep a night, totally vegetarian diet, has, has never touched alcohol, never touched caffeine, all that sort of stuff, which means he can't travel very well. He's only ever left India once because his routine is, is so restrictive that he, he can't really bring it with him. He, he relies on being at home so that he can uh, cook for himself and uh, so he can control what goes into his body. But, you know, that paints a picture of somebody who's quite joyless uh, and yet despite that harsh regime that he endures, he's a, a very 
warm, light-hearted man who, you know, always has a smile on his face, has an opinion about everything, is a great communicator, a great raconteur. And um, I think, yeah, having got to know him and uh, learned about just how difficult his background and his childhood was, leaving home at the age of 12, finding himself alone on the streets, on the breadline, but then from there, literally dragging himself up into the Indian middle class, educating himself, getting himself a succession of jobs, which have provided him now with a certain level of respect and comfort. He has overcome a great deal by committing himself to a very, a very narrow path. How did he react to the book? Because you've built up a friendship, you respect him, you admire mm. him. It's clear that he's, he's had a big impact in your life. Yeah. So that must have been quite nerve-wracking because it's one thing submitting a proof copy to a publisher or an editor. But when you've passed that professional and you've moved into the emotional realm with somebody, their criticisms or their, their ideas and what you've done become way more significant. Oh, absolutely. So that inhibited me throughout the, the writing of the book. That's why it took uh, so much longer to complete than I ever thought it would, because I was continually having to stop myself mid-flow and ask myself some very difficult questions about how would the real babuti that I know and love react in a given situation. You know, I, I put the character based on him into some quite difficult and challenging situations in the book. And I had to be sure with myself in each case that his response to those would be authentic. Um, if the character of Babuti uh, was to ring true, then he had to mirror the real-life Babuti that I knew. I couldn't put words into his mouth, which would incredibly come from the mouth of, of the real man who I knew so well. Um, so it was a, a constant process of asking myself those questions, seeking advice from Babuti himself if I needed to. He was on call 24-7 pretty much. If I needed a certain question asked, you know, a, a factual thing that needed confirmation or whatever it might be, I could just pick up the phone or email him and get my response. So he helped me build the portrait of himself as well in many ways. But then when it came to actually completing the book and sending it off to him for him to read for the first time, that was probably the most nerve-wracking experience of my life because having come to love and respect him so much, I knew that if he didn't like any aspect of how he was portrayed, if there was anything about what I'd done which he felt didn't ring true or offended him in some way, I couldn't have proceeded with the book. I, I couldn't have let it out into the world in that state. I would have had to have gone back and, and changed it and edited it. So I waited for three days for him to read the book and give his response to it. And in those three days, I could barely eat, I could barely sleep. But when finally he got back to me and said that he was absolutely happy with everything I'd done and just overwhelmed with the sensitivity and the understanding with which I'd portrayed not just him, but other people in his life, his wife, his son, some of his friends, that was the biggest relief for me. It was like, okay, I've, I've done my job well. I've lived up to the promise that I made him. And... Hadn't that not been the case, we may not be talking now. God, that, uh, that sounds so intense and so intimate. Yeah. It almost sounds like a big love relationship. Obviously, it's a platonic relationship, but at the same time, it's hugely impactful. Very much so. 
Yeah, and I hope that comes across in the book. It, it's funny that the relationship between the English character John and Bibuti's character in the book kind of runs in parallel with what was happening between myself and Bibuti in real life throughout the writing of it. Uh, as those two characters were coming to know and understand each other better, so were myself and Bibuti. And to the point now that, yes, the book couldn't have in- existed without his consent and his permission, but much more than that, the book has brought us so much closer together in real life. And, um, yeah, having only visited him three times, but having this very close uh, and constantly kind of updated and nurtured contact over the phone and by email and stuff, we consider each other best friends now. And um, his his friendship uh, has been a great help to me in, in times of stress and trouble. I, I lost my brother a few years ago to cancer and then my dad got ill and then, then I got married and then Pigeon English took off and all of those things that have had a great impact on my life. Babuti has been around for in some way or another and he shared in all of that. He's always the, the first person to congratulate me when something goes well and the first person to offer words of consolation if I'm having a hard time. So yeah, we're very close. Can I ask you about John Locke, your your other protagonist? His marriage is very strained and very difficult. Mm. And also Babuti's wife seems to be very fraught with worry the whole time and, mm. and almost resentful, bitter and angry. Do you think in some ways how we communicate, how men and women communicate or how we communicate in marriage and how we understand what the meaning of intimacy is or not, do you think we're gulfs apart, men and women? Yeah, well, I think... I myself am still relatively newly married. I've been married for four and a half years or so. And I've always taken great conscious pains to communicate openly and honestly with my wife because my example of a marriage, you know, observing how my mum and dad and people of those generations communicate or actually fail to communicate with each other has left me with the impression that actually you're right, we don't talk enough, we're not honest enough with with each other. Things are so often left unsaid, which then can fester into resentments and misunderstandings that can have, you know, quite devastating consequences on a marriage and on those two people's sense of selves and, and sense of personal happiness. I guess that's not just a generational thing, it's a cultural thing as well. Bibuti and his wife, they have this kind of unspoken understanding that she will never understand what compels him to do what he does and and she stopped asking questions about that and she has stopped asking him to to quit so her role is to kind of worry about him and then if he injures himself you know help him to heal you know be there for him if he needs her and um i i guess the same is true of john and ellen in the book it is that they've stopped asking themselves and each other questions they've settled in They've been married for a very long time and they feel that they know everything there is to know about each other. So they've kind of, their curiosity for each other has waned. And, you know, personal disappointments are often visited on the the people closest to us. And that's something, especially in in John and Ellen's relationship, I was trying to explore. John is somebody who has lived an unfulfilled life, a frustrated life in many ways. He, he had hoped for a lot more for himself, and it never quite happened for him. It never quite worked out. And unfortunately, he, he lacks the strength of character to be able to avoid taking that out on those closest to him and, and you know, visiting that disappointment onto his wife. 
So theirs is uh, a sad relationship in many ways. But throughout the book, I think I, I reveal in their past, you know, these glimpses of what they once had and uh, the glimpses of the younger selves, which were full of hope. Uh, and I guess John is missing that. He's come to an age where he's realized that those days are, are never going to come back around again. And his way of kind of dealing with that is to run off to India the first chance he gets to help a stranger break a world record. And it's a bizarre motivation for him, but one that makes absolute sense to him. He feels like he has been unable to represent his own magnificence to his wife, but maybe it's easier for him to show that side or reveal that side of himself to a stranger. And that really jumps out from the book that this man desperately wants to feel, whether it's fear uh, Mm. or passion, he just needs to know that he's blood in his veins. So last question for you, Stephen, and I'm going to quote you a line from Man and Fire. When a person drinks from the source, he truly becomes unbreakable. I am living proof of this. Do you believe in that? Well, it depends what our idea of the source is. And for me, that's another thing that uh, I explore in the book is we all have differing ideas of what faith is or or what God is. John starts off as an essentially godless person. He he has no belief in anything bigger than himself. And by the end, he's come to some kind of understanding that he he is now, through his relationship with Babuti uh, and through the intimacy that those two men find between themselves, John realizes that actually there is probably something bigger at play in life. And whether you choose to name that as God or a religion of, of any denomination or not, is, I think, open to interpretation. I think for John, he's found God in other people. He has found God in people who have accepted him for who he is and who have shown him compassion and shown him care and shown him love. And Babuti, for his part, much as in real life, is somebody who has a a very strong faith but but doesn't necessarily go in for the dogma or the uh, accoutrements of uh, a practiced religion. He just has a a strong belief in a unifying force, something that holds us all together and something which uh, encourages the better part of our natures. And that's something that I think we could all kind of do with a bit more of in our lives. You know, we live in, in such a fractured and fraught world these days and we're constantly pitted against each other and for me I think the idea that we become better through the acceptance and love of and and from other people is is quite an obvious thing to live a life by I think that there's no other way like I say whether that manifests itself in going to church or praying or whether it manifests itself in just treating people the way you would hope to be treated is a matter of personal choice.
and that was British novelist Stephen Kalman. Man on Far is published by Bloomsbury and retails for in around 15 euros in hardback. Okay, coming up next, we're going to stick with the theme of courage and hear about our current Pope and how he practices the art of transformational management. Welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's great to have your company this evening. The genius of Pope Francis, writes award-winning British journalist Paul Vallely, is that he combines tradition with modernity. He knows what needs doing. He is an old man in a hurry. Paul Vallely is a writer and consultant on ethics, religion and international development and is one of Britain's most respected journalists. Paul has advised the Catholic bishops of England and Wales and, interestingly, co-wrote Bob Geldof's best-selling autobiography, Is That It? Paul's notable books include Promised Lands, Stories of Power and Poverty in the Third World, The Fifth Crusade, George Bush and the Christianisation of the War in Iraq and Paul is the editor of The New Politics. Catholic social teaching for the 21st century. Well, Paul's latest biography, Pope Francis, The Struggle for the Soul of Catholicism, has just been published by Bloomsbury and is a revised and expanded edition to his 2013 best-selling biography on the Pope. Now, before you write this book off as just another boring biography for Holy Joes and the well-intentioned, think again. Paul has written a remarkably interesting book unravelling a tough and hugely courageous man. Well, I had the pleasure of talking with Paul over the weekend. I put it to him, is Pope Francis a Pope of Contradictions? He is a Pope of Contradictions in, in some ways, but other people's templates make him look as though he's contradictory. To himself, he's not, he's not contradictory, although he is capable of living with, uh, with impulses which, which seem to us to be contradictory. So look at contraception, for instance. On that, he will praise Paul VI and Humanae Vitae, the great encyclical which upheld the ban on contraception when everybody was expecting the Church's teaching to change. So in one sense, yeah, there he is. He's, he's in the same area as all other Popes. But then when it when comes to contraception, he starts talking about how population control is a, is a device by the rich to control the poor. So he's coming to the same conclusion, but for an entirely different reason. And that grows out of him being from the developing world and being uh, somebody who looks at the world from the bottom up, as it were. But he's also a, a parish priest in his approach. The past pope was a, a theologian, Benedict. Uh, John Paul was a philosopher. Uh, but this man is a pastor. He's, he's like a parish priest. Pre- 
priest. And so he sees people and their problems before he sees uh, the, the doctrine that lies behind them, as it were. And so on something like contraception, he'll, he'll say things like, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't all be breeding like rabbits, and uh, Catholics don't have to do that, and we want responsible parenthood. And now, that doesn't kind of contradict what he says, if you kind of drill down to the theory of it. But in practice, it kind of seems to contradict it. And, and he said uh, uh, to one woman who had had uh, seven children by cesarean operation, he said, what are you doing? Are you challenging God? Are you trying to kind of, you know, say to God, come on, then kill me next time and leave all these kids with no mother? So, I mean, quite hard words for her when in, in, and she, she would have expected to have uh, had praise from a pope because she was uh, not practicing contraception. So, so all of that can seem contradictory, but he sees it as a, as a kind of unified vision which grows out of a gospel of love. He's always talking about mercy. He thinks that you look at the person before you and you use the gospel to make their life better uh, rather than coming in with a set of rules and saying you don't fit these rules so you're wrong. Now, you say he's a great believer in change and he learned that on the heavy-hearted days in Cordoba when he lived very much in isolation from the Jesuit community. But when I look at his reign so far and I look at issues of women's ordination and also in terms of gay rights issues, he's rather backward. Well, those are uh, issues of the secular world. They're not really issues for for, for the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has got a pretty clear line on gay issues. It thinks that uh, marriage is essentially about a man and a woman procreating. Uh, Over the years, it's made concessions to that and said, well, it's about love and expressions of love and so forth. But essentially, it's still focused on the idea that that marriage is about procreation. And if you're not a man and a woman, then you you can't do that. So the Catholic Church feels that that's against the law of nature. And that's where they get all these phrases about intrinsic evil and so forth, which are rooted in that kind of um, medieval scholastic philosophy, which make it look to the outside world like an organisation which is homophobic and hostile to gays, which in many in many instances it has been in the past. And he's changing that. He, when he says, who am I to judge? He's the first pope ever to use the word gay. And so he's, he's, he's removing that kind of hostility towards gay people that has been there in, in reality in the Catholic Church. And he's saying, come on, let's go to the Catholic theory, which says uh, that everybody is welcome in the church and that ideally you know people should be married and and that's what marriage is but he's not against civil unions or against uh, equal rights for for gay people and those are all kind of advances but they're not actually going the whole hog that the secular world has gone and saying that uh, same-sex marriage is the same as heterosexual marriage so he's, he's a catholic you know but he's he's a liberal pastoral merciful catholic You describe him as a transformational leader. And when we think about the church and we think about the Vatican and the Curia, it's a massive organisation, employees throughout the world. How would you assess his leadership style? He's known for all the kind of humble simplicity, whether that is a pure stunt or not, I don't know. I mean, he's a man of, of considerable authenticity, personal integrity. He walks the talk. He practices what he preaches. He says, let's have a simple lifestyle. And he has a simple lifestyle. You know, he goes to America and he drives around a Fiat 500. You know, it, that's not for show. It's a big gesture. So in that sense, it's for show. But it's actually what he thinks is important and how he lives his life. And he was like that when he was in Buenos Aires. So, no, it's not. He's not. He's not putting it on. It's not for show. Well, what would you say is his sense of purpose? 
Well, what he's trying to do is he's trying to say that the gospel is good news. Uh, it is joyful. His big first document was called The Joy of the Gospel. Uh, and he wants people to feel that the message of Christianity is not some kind of burden or duty that you have to kind of do with a long face, a funeral face, as he calls it. It's something which should make your life feel better and make the world a better place. And so that's his starting point. So he has this personal idea of frugal, austere simplicity, but he's not a miserable man. You know, he never stops smiling. Uh, he's a very joyful man, but he wants people to live simply and to think that uh, if you know, live simply so that others may simply live. That's the heart of that. So it starts from that personal thing, but then it spreads out into an organizational message, and he's trying to change the Catholic Church on lots of different levels. He changes people who he thinks are not pastoral, but who are, are rigorists, conservative legalists. Uh, he's removed some of those from office. He's trying to change the culture so that the people who are in the Vatican still look at the world differently and see themselves as servants of the church, not as masters of the church. He's appointing new cardinals from all around the world. He's not appointing people from traditional sees where, where the bishop expects to be a cardinal. He's making cardinals in Burkina Faso and Haiti and, you know, Burma, all over the place. Once again, he's looking at the world from the bottom up. Uh, it's like a pope who looks down the other end of the telescope to the one that we're used to popes looking down. His clean-up of the Vatican Bank has been quite a shocker for some. And I know, and I quote you here, you say that some hardliners see the Pope as a Machiavellian bent on introducing liberalism by stealth. Bishop Burke has, how should I say this politely, has been quite outspoken on some of those changes, hasn't he? He's introduced the kind of ordinary accountancy procedures that we have in, in the commercial world into the Vatican where they've, they've never had those. They, the priests uh, at the Vatican Bank used to say, and the officials there used to say, we don't answer to anybody except God. Well, now they have to answer to ordinary accountants and the financial uh, regulatory authorities, like any other bank. So he's, he's brought in common sense changes there. And where people have got in the way and have been obstructive, he's just removed them. I mean, one day he removed five cardinals, the entire supervisory board of the Vatican Bank uh, because he decided that they were an obstacle to change. So they went just like that. So he he can be quite a ruthless operator in those kind of senses. And he he had um, a priest called uh, Monsignor Rica who ran the guest house where he used to stay when he was uh, a cardinal in Rome. And and so he's one of the people that this pope trusted as soon as he arrived in Rome because he didn't know many people. He was, you know, an infrequent visitor. This chap he trusted, he put Rica into the Vatican Bank, made him his eyes and ears, said he had power and authority to access any document and was to ask any questions he wanted. Within a month, the people who, who had felt that their cage was being rattled by this were leaking stories about Rika, saying that uh, he'd got a homosexual past and he had been up to all kinds of things when he was a papal diplomat in the past. And Rika was, uh, realised this was an embarrassment for the Pope, so he handed his resignation in. And the Pope refused to accept it. And he said, no, this is just an attempt to derail my, um, my reforms. And that was when he came out with that famous line, who am I to judge? Uh, when he was asked about a gay priest. It was this gay priest, Monsignor Rica, and he was sending out a message there, a wider message about tolerance and all of that, of course, but also a very specific message to his enemies and opponents within the bank and the Vatican in general to say, you know, you're not going to derail me by these kind of dirty tricks. And he held the line on it, and he's been absolutely rigorous on cleaning up the Vatican Bank. The other subject you mentioned, the church in general, and the kind of things that Cardinal Burke has been so opposed to. Burke is one of these classic rigorists. He's, he's a canon lawyer, he looks at the rules, he's very judgmental, very condemnatory, he wants people to fit the 
the rules. And um, the Pope has the opposite approach. He wants the rules to fit the people. The Sabbath was, was made for man, not man made for the Sabbath, is the Pope's view. And on that, he, he will tolerate uh, people who disagree with him. And there are quite a lot of conservatives uh, that he's left in the Vatican because they are team players and, and they are people who understand his pastoral view. But these, these rigorists, um, he's just given them the heave-ho. And so in one sense, he's been ruthless. But in, an, in another sense, he's, he's allowed a lot of people to remain in the Vatican with whom he doesn't necessarily agree because he wants to change the way the church makes its decisions and allow all people to have a view. And that's what we've seen happening at uh, the Synod of Bishops. The subtitle of my book is The Struggle for the Soul of Catholicism. And that's what we've been witnessing, a real struggle. And it's things that were papered over under previous papacies where disagreement was branded as dissent and you weren't allowed to speak. That's all out in the open now. And the Pope says, you know, well, that's good. That's healthy. Let's have a, let's have a big row. Let's air it. And he's, he's completely unfazed by that. And I think that grows out of his Jesuit training and uh, his training on discernment, how we need to look at all these situations and to discern what it is that God wants from us. And discernment is a key aspect or key principle of Jesuit or Ignatian uh, spirituality. And one of the things that hops off the page, and especially I think it was in your um, chapter on crisis in Cordoba, is that he has learned from his own mistakes. He's challenged himself on that and he's pushed on and he's willing to understand his mistakes, which takes some leadership, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most attractive things about him. He's learned from his mistakes. When, when he was uh, the leader of the Jesuits, he was, he was concerned about the poor. He's always been concerned about the poor, but he looked at them as people who needed help and charity and uh, he was very autocratic in the way he ran the Jesuits. He alienated a lot of people by being so bossy and so strict and so disciplinarian. He was now the smiling Pope then. He was called Horseface because he always had a long face. And he, he was, he was a, a more severe man. And there was a big split in the Jesuits between people who, the liberation theology types, who wanted to work with and uh, live with the poor in the slums, and those who wanted to kind of maintain the traditional Jesuit uh, spirituality and, and job of educating the country's rich elite, uh, the children of, of the elite. And so the Jesuits were divided, and eventually those who loathed him began to outnumber those who loved him, and he was given the heave-ho by the Jesuit leadership in Rome, and he was sent off to exile for two years because they didn't know what to do with him, but they wanted him out of Buenos Aires because he was carrying on being a, a focus of dissent and he was criticising the new leaders and uh, he, was, he was regarded as meddlesome so they, they packed him off to Cordoba for two years. Well while he was there and he wasn't given any public duties there, he, he heard confessions but he wasn't allowed to say mass in public uh, and he underwent this period of humiliation but also of growing humility and, and the Jesuit training which is about the spiritual exercise is about trying to strip through your, your own layers of um, self-delusion and self-justification, getting through to the core of who you are and what God wants you to be. And in those two years, he, he seems to have undergone some kind of dark night of the soul and a, a complete transformation, because when he came back out of Cordoba and he was made an ordinary bishop back in Buenos Aires, he had become a different kind of person, different leader, different leadership style. He listened, he consulted, he was participative, he spent a huge amount of time with the poor, so much so he became known as the Bishop of the Slums. And he learned a lot from the poor, and he learned a lot about the complexity of people's lives. And, he, you know, he met, he met drug dealers and prostitutes, and he realized that they weren't just people who caused problems in society. They were people with problems, and the church needed to help them. So he developed this kind of more complex uh, understanding of, of life. And uh, he's now trying to bring the changes that occurred to him. He's trying to make the church change in the same way. Jesuit formation 
Paul, it's very rigorous. It's intense. It's very disciplined. How much of that has he used over the last two or three years? How much has he used that and how has that nurtured his understanding of how to create change? Well, he's very Jesuit. If you talk to a Jesuit, they will, they will list all the things that he's done and say, oh, yeah, that's typically Jesuit. If you look at his homily at Easter, the first homily he gave, he talked about, imagine you are one of the women running towards the tomb. Go through it in your head. That's an absolutely classic Ignatian tool and technique to imagine yourself into the gospel. So right from the outset, that was there. But then what you see with the Synod of Bishops most recently is it's almost modeled on the way that a Jesuit provincial runs the province he has he has advisors who are called consultors and they give him advice on how he should be running the province and, and, and he listens to all of that and then he makes his mind up. Well, that's pretty much what I think is happening with this synod. We've had, first of all, we had a questionnaire of the laity, which no pope's ever done before and which was revolutionary. Then we had the first synod. Then we had a year of discussion and, and debate within the church, then another synod. And now the pope has heard all of that and he's going to go away and write a document which will encapsulate his conclusions. So that is an absolutely classic Jesuit process. You, you, you consult, you listen, and then you decide. So we can expect this Pope to go off and make some decision now. Do you think he's created a space for ordinary Catholics or, or certainly dis- some disenfranchised Catholics to be heard? He's created a different way of being a Pope and a different way of being a Catholic. And, you know, if he died tomorrow, he would still be there. As one, of the, one of the great theologians uh, had a phrase, dangerous memory. Francis will always be a dangerous memory for the Church, whatever Popes follow him. Because he's saying, you know, put people first. Rules are there to help people be better. They're not there as burdens. All of the kind of condemnatory, judgmental, finger-wagging Church has been replaced by this kind of listening, friendly, arm-around-the-shoulder Church. And, you know, all of that is is absolutely classically Jesuit, uh, but it's a major change on what we've been used to over the past century. How solitary a man is he? Because you give some very interesting details of his dining arrangements and his prayer life. And it strikes me that he craves solitude. Well, every morning he gets up early, 4 o'clock, 4.30, and he prays for two hours alone in front of the tabernacle. And he always has done did that when he was in Buenos Aires. And one of his close advisors in Buenos Aires said that's where he makes his decision. He puts all his decisions before the Lord. And so he has two hours of prayer in the morning. And then he, then he begins his day. And then his day is um, he's a vigorous bureaucrat. He gets through a lot of paperwork. But he's capable of crafting these sermons, which he delivers to the ordinary people um, in the morning mass, the people from the Vatican who, who go into the chapel of the Casa Santa Marta. And they're kind of crafted in, in the way that an ordinary parish priest would craft his homilies. You know, three points and very simple to understand, vivid illustrations. So he's a man of great complexity. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of great sociability. Uh, he's a man of application as an administrator. He's obviously a very shrewd politician. You've just got to see the way that he handled himself in the United States, giving a very firm message, but with a very soft tone. Uh, he's a sophisticated operator. So there are many sides to him. He is a solitary man. He's a social man. He's a naive man. He's a very shrewd man. There are lots of facets to his character. Now, Paul, I'm just going to quote you here on a sentence of which I found very, very revealing. You say humility is a much misunderstood quality in the contemporary world and it is a quality in short supply. And you quote St. Augustine, false humility is grievous pride. Can you square that up with his, his reign so far and what he's setting out to do? Well, he's, he's a man of ostentatious 
humility. It's audacious humility. He knows what he's doing. I mean, if you take, when he was in Buenos Aires, he, he started to use the subway. He got rid of the chauffeur-driven car for the archbishop. He does the same thing now. When he has to have a car, it's a Fiat 500. He knows that sends off a lot of different signals at the same time. On a practical level, it's much easier to travel around the subway. You know, if you've been to Buenos Aires, there's massive traffic jams there. So it just makes sense to get the subway rather than getting stuck in a traffic jam all the time. But it also enables him to talk to ordinary people. He would sit next to people on the tube and talk to them. It also sends out a signal which says, this man is like us. He's an ordinary man. He's not grand. He's humble. So one gesture like you know, getting the subway, uh, which is tra- translated as Pope into, into going into small cars instead of these, these grand ones, that works on so many levels. And he knows that. So his humility is partly intuitive, but it's partly thought through. That's not to say it's fake or dodgy in any way, but it's planned. And, and he knows, he understands how the modern world appreciates gestures more than words. And, and it's like, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, a gesture is worth, is worth a thousand sermons. And if the Pope is driving around in, in the small car, then that tells us a lot about humility about uh, economics, about the climate change and the planet. And he can 